You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Money. What does the Bible say about it? We recognize our need for it to live and function in the world, but how should we manage it? Maybe a better question is, are we managing it? Or is money mastering us? As Christians, we recognize how we view or manage money cannot save us. Even our most generous acts cannot save us. Christ alone saves us through the most lavish generosity of all time, where he laid down his life as a sacrifice on the cross. Though our charity and how we manage money cannot save us, it speaks to how much we understand the generosity of God giving us his son so we can be reconciled to him for eternity. Therefore, money becomes an excellent diagnostic tool to identify where our heart is, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Good morning. If you guys would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at a tale of two stories. Story of two different men, one with a name, one without a name, as we continue our money series this morning. We'll be in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. Matthew 19, we're continuing in our money series this morning. And I realized I did something last week. I jumped into the series without explaining why we're doing a series on money. And so just let me give you a little bit of a backstory here, and hopefully this frames a little bit about money. So toward, yeah, it was the end of last year, we were doing our year-in giving and our year-in gift for our family. So I sat down with my kids, and I invited them in on the process and said, hey, let's do the gift together, and pulled out the computer and showed them how to do everything. And so entered the number and said, this is what we're going to give. And my daughter, Brooke, said verbatim, we are not giving that much. And I was like, we. <laughs> that's, that's funny. That's ironic. Because I wasn't sure what you were contributing to the family. But she said, we are not giving that much. And so I took this as an opportunity to try to explain to her. But I realized, living in the 21st century, my daughter needed a lesson on pronouns, specifically possessive pronouns. So mom and dad worked hard for this money, therefore it's all theirs. Mom and dad bought this house, so it's ours. Since you paid for this car, it's yours. She could respond, well, I bought this toy with my money, and we would say, no, that's the money that we gave you, and so we will allow the toy to remain yours. All of this, we could say, was just a lesson in spending and money and all of that sort of stuff that I was explaining to my five-year-old, six-year-old daughter. So the reason why we're diving into it this morning is because throughout the years, our elders have had discussions about money and have said, man, it seems like this is an area where we need to grow in discipling our church family and members in. And one of the ways I said last week, you can even tell, not always, but in some cases, the spiritual maturity of your church is even through the giving. And historically, in many churches, but especially in ours, about 10% of the members of GCC make up over half the giving, which is a lot of weight for about 10% of the people to carry. And so what we would say is that instead of just saying, look, there's a problem with money over there, Hopefully someone will deal with it. What we're saying is let's, let's dive into that. And specifically, let's dive into it through biblical theology to see what the redemptive narrative as a whole has to say and speak about money. And so that's what we're doing. We're diving in this series in hopes 
that it will help us understand and give us a biblical framework for money that we can disciple our church family in and that we can live and walk faithfully to what God would have for us in our finances. And so that's what we're doing and that's where we're at this morning. What I would say, I'm gonna give some challenges throughout the sermon this morning. My first one's gonna be this. If you have not picked it up yet, there's a book on the back table called Why Should I Give to My Church? You can read that book even if you're a slow reader like myself in about 20 to 30 minutes if you sit down with it. It's a small pamphlet, so I would encourage you. If you haven't done it yet, it's a free gift. Please grab it. It's on the back table. You can get it on your way out today. So grab that gift, that book, read through that because it might help answer some of the questions that you already have that maybe we're not gonna address in this series. But with that, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all, all these I've kept. So what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard the, uh, this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of, of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to gather. Thank you for the local church gathered together, Christ, which is a picture of who you are. We are a body of many members that come together and get to reflect to the world who you are and what you are like. Thank you that we can come and freely worship. Thank you that we can come and freely sing. Thank you that we get to come and hear your word read aloud, that we get to come and hear your word preached. Father, thank you for your grace, for your common grace. The rain, and though sometimes we often dread it, Father, the sunshine we have not earned and don't deserve, the gift of life, even though we are selfish. Father, our ability to walk and talk Every breath we have is a gift from you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, ultimate, for your divine grace, the gift of your son, the gift of life and eternal life, a gift that we cannot earn, a gift that we cannot merit, a gift that you freely give because you are good, Father. Teach us this morning. Speak to us this morning. Give us ears that are attentive. Give us a heart that is open to receive. Father, where there is greed and sin in our heart that is grieving your spirit, grieve us and convict us. If your word pushes against our lives, Father, let us submit to your word, not to our own emotions. Father, where we have let money master us, we pray that you would realign our hearts this morning to submit under the mastership of a beautiful and glorious master, your son, and the righteousness that he has purchased for us. We love you. We pray all the city. Our main point this morning is going to be grace produces generosity. Grace produces generosity. But you, you would first need to understand a definition of grace. So there's common grace that sometimes people refer to. Sunshine is a common grace that God gives to all people. Rain is a gift 
that God gives to all people. Air, oxygen is a gift, a common grace that God gives to all people. What we're going to talk about this morning is God's special divine saving grace. So this week, as our elders met for our elders meeting, I asked our elders to just kind of reflect on grace, specifically God's divine saving grace, and write down some notes. And so I wanted to share those notes with you first, just to help you frame and understand what we mean by grace. So this is from Ronnie, uh, one of our elders. He said, grace is unmerited favor. Ronnie, you always pick apart my spelling, but you put two R's in unmerited. So I want to publicly let you know that you did that. I erased it. Got it right here. So let's start over. Grace, man, that felt good. Sinful, I, I probably, but man, it felt good. I love you. Grace is unmerited favor. There was nothing I could have done to earn my existence, and yet here I am. Worse than that, from the moment of my birth moving forward, I have sinned against him and rebelled against God's calling on my life. I have been self-centered, placing my needs above others. In spite of all this, he still sent Jesus to live the selfless life I could not live and died that I would be reconciled to God. This life and the life to come are all a gift from God that I could have never earned. Here's another reflection on grace. Grace pulls me, uh, pulls me out of the equation. Grace means what I receive is completely disconnected from my actions and performance. Grace makes me uncomfortable because it forces me to give up control and power through proving myself. Grace is free and freeing, free in the fact that I cannot pay or give anything for it, freeing in the sense that I can obey from a heart that doesn't have to earn love. As amazing as grace is, it is really hard to believe and rest in because grace, namely God's divine saving grace, goes against everything in this world. You want good grades? Work harder in school. You want a good job? Outwork everyone else. You want to be praised? Outshine everyone else. You want your boss's approval? Have an unmatched work ethic. Now you want God's approval, his praise, and his love? Simply open your hands, make sure they are completely empty, and allow him to offer everything through his son's life and sacrifice on your behalf. It's the message of how it starts off. We're saved by grace alone. That's where it starts, grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. And so for us to understand the way that grace takes a person as they are, radically saves and transforms their heart, we also need to know that grace doesn't leave a person where they are. So we don't need to fix ourselves up to come to God. God takes us where we are, saves us, transforms us, and continues to do so. And so this morning, we're going to look at how grace produces generosity. All right? So let's look again at chapter 19 and verse 16. This is often referred to as a rich young man. We're not even He's not even given a name. Before that, we understand that he has great possessions. But he recognizes, he says, teacher. So he recognizes Jesus to be a teacher. So right away, that's interesting, considering Jesus didn't come from any rabbinic schools. I just love the fact that someone has recognized this, so to speak, uneducated man as a teacher. So he says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So, so he poses this question to Jesus, and he said to him, you might think that Jesus would say, Silly man, you can't have eternal life. You have failed all of God's commands in these certain ways. But Jesus goes here. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Do you see that? By Jesus saying this, there's only one who is good. You have to understand what he's doing. He's saying that as much as the world likes to say, I'm a good person or I'm a pretty good guy or I'm a pretty good girl or whatever it is, Jesus is saying there is only one person in all of the universe who's good, and it's God. That's it. 
There's one person who can claim that title and it's God alone. The other person is Christ alone. And so what Jesus is doing already is saying, hey, there's only one who's good. You might like to do this horizontal comparison, but the ultimate comparison is God. Goodness, perfect, righteous, holy, completely. What Jesus is saying is, and what he's going to frame is that there's one way and it's through him and through his goodness. So our world likes to say we're good, but the Bible doesn't teach that. So first, look at what Psalm 53 says. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. All fallen away. They have all become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The Apostle Paul recites this and quotes this in Romans 3. So as much as you might say, I'm a pretty good person, the standard of goodness is God. Holy, absolute, righteous perfection. And so right away, he was saying, hey, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Then he goes on to say, look, if you would keep the commandments, I love this. He goes, which ones? Jesus says to him, you might think that he would start off with the horizontal ones. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Do not make unto thee any graven image. He goes right to the horizontal stuff. Why? Our greed, our giving, our generosity, and all that affects horizontal relationships. There is no sin that is in a vacuum. There's no sin removed. All of our sin is corporate. All of our sin, regardless of what it is, has an impact on the body of Christ and, our, and on our society at large. And so he says, which ones? And Jesus said, 18 here, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look at the young man's response. you got to love this response. And maybe he was a really good moral citizen, a very virtuous man. And maybe he was thought of as that way. And so he's just been a pretty good guy in the community at large. And he says this, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Whoa. First, I would have loved to have met with this guy's parents and said, can you, does this guy really honor you his entire life from the time he was a baby? I mean, I think you can start to smell the self-righteousness coming off this guy. But he goes, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? (laughs) Yet this man is a morally religious person doing all of these works. There is still an emptiness inside of him to ask the question, what's wrong? Look, I'm, I'm living this way. I'm doing these things. There's still something missing. There's a massive void inside my heart. What is it? What do I lack? Look here. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, that word perfect is translated from the Greek word, teleos, which means complete, total, devotion. It means finished. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Interesting. This this young virtuous man comes and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Just give me one thing. So essentially, he's like, just tell me, there's got to be one more thing. I'm essentially nailing it at everything else. I'm killing it. Just give me one more thing to tip this scale in my direction, and surely, by doing one more thing, I will put God underneath my control in such a way that he will have no other choice but to accept me and give me eternal life. In other words, I'll be the master and I will, do, I will live such a life to where I look to God and say, you have no choice but to give me eternal life because of the life that I have lived. 
This is what this guy is doing. And then Jesus, what does Jesus do? He does what he always does. He goes straight after the heart. If, if we were in a dialogue right now, and this was evangelism, and I was having this conversation with a non-Christian, and, and he's asking, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I live a pretty good life. Then I might be like, oh yeah, well, let me explain how Jesus defines these things in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you've ever uh, not just committed adultery, but lusted after a woman, if you've after, ever hated someone, you've committed murder. Jesus doesn't even do that. He goes straight for the guy's heart. It's like a dagger. He knows the heart. And what does he say? If you want to follow me, if you want to be perfect, live a life that's fully devoted and complete, sell all your riches and come follow me. The guy was sorrowful and walks away. He couldn't actually get past the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That, made, that, that became clear. He wasn't as devoted and as righteous as he thought he was. Because Jesus, he does exactly what you ask for. You ask for one thing, here's one thing. I'll give you one thing. And the one thing he gives him, he says, anything but that. And he walks away. And here's the thing. Jesus goes after what we hold dear. And so when Christ comes into your heart and saves you by his grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, he is saving you because he wants to not just be your savior, but also your Lord. And this guy wanted his riches. And that's what he wanted. But it's not always riches that Christ goes after. Sometimes it's family. And so sometimes the thing that actually has mastery over you, that you're actually treasuring, because that's what we see. We see this guy's heart and we see his treasure. And his treasure is his wealth and his possessions, which is interesting because he says, what's still lacking inside of me? A man who has such great wealth and possessions goes, what's lacking? Isn't it interesting that he has all of this and something is missing inside of him? So here's the question. What is the one thing that if Christ said to you, walk away from this, that you would say, uh-uh, because there you can see what your heart is actually given to. Oftentimes as a pastor, the things that when, when we meet with people and, and ask people, hey, I think you need to step away from this. Hey, I think you need to give this up for a season. If their immediate response is no, then we know for sure that it's something they should give up. You see, when, when, when you tell someone, hey, I think you need to walk away from this, and, and, and they're like, I'm not walking away from that. What, what you have realized is that you just got really close to their treasure that they are wrapped around and they're not willing to give up. What is the thing that you're unwilling to say no to? Let me ask this. If someone came in and said, hey, for one week, give this up, or for one month, or for one year, what's the one thing you would say? I'm not doing that. Here's my challenge. Write down what some of those things might be that would be really hard for you to walk away from. Honestly, sometimes it's really good things. And there's times where Jesus calls even a loyalty and a full devotion to family because our first loyalty is to Christ. And he says, this, honestly, as we talked about idols last week, approval. You can't actually be a loving parent. You can't actually be a loving spouse or a loving friend if the thing that you love and treasure most is the approval of your kids and your spouse and your friends. Why? You'll never be able to say difficult things that love requires to them because that would risk you losing their approval, their acceptance in the very thing that your heart treasures and loves, their approval. But the time that you can say, Christ, take this. This is my idol. This is my treasure. This thing's mastering me. I'm not managing it. It is mastering my life. It is robbing me of joy. It is sucking me dry. I said last week, there's going to come a day that I have to stand or that Allie has to stand and we have to view the other one in the casket. That's a reality. My hope and prayer is that the person in the casket is never our savior. 
Because as I said last week, we will both have to die two deaths on that day. You see, relationships outside of Christ were never meant to be this treasure that we put all of our heart into. For this man, it was really clear. He thought he was so righteous. He thought he was so awesome. And, and, and he says, give this up. And he's like, I can't. What is the one thing for you? Write that down that you feel like you cannot give up, that you can't walk away from, that you would not say no to. For some people, and this is my other challenge, for one week, give it up. Just try it. And, and, and don't do something lame like vegetables or something like that or sugar just so you can look better. Do something that's actually hard for you. Something hard for you. Here's a good one. Teenagers in the room, try, try giving this up for a week. You guys are like, no, that's because it's an idol. <laughs> it's your little treasure right here. Once heard a comedian say, he's like, if you want to do something really loving for a friend of yours or for someone you love, he goes, take their phone and hide it. And he goes, wait till they hit rock bottom. He's like, it'll take about a minute or two. And then give them the phone back. And he goes, you're going to bring so much joy back into their life. And he was making this joke, but he's like, we don't know how to live without our phones. And he goes, once I lost my phone, he goes, I dropped it. And he goes, a sound came out of me that I'm not proud of. And then I, when I picked it up and realized that there were no cracks, I held it so dear. And he's like, that's us. But with so many things in life, what is that thing that we're holding dear? Christ doesn't say, hey, give me half of your loyalty. Give me half of your heart. I want to be master over 99% of your life. He's like, I want to be Lord over all. What are you holding on to? To where you're saying, Jesus, this is more valuable and treasured treasurable to me than you are. For a lot of people, it's wealth. For a lot of people, it's riches. For a lot of people, it's possessions. How do I know that? Because week after week, we could say, hey, what about giving? What about generosity? And you're like, I ain't writing that check. These are mine. Technically, 100% belongs to God. Maybe you give 10% away and he says, great, uh, I'm, I'm letting you steward my 90, kind of like the talk I had with my daughter. Maybe you give 20% away and God's like, hey, I'll still let you steward my 80%. Technically, it's all God's given to us to be faithful stewards of. Grace produces generosity. We're going to come back to these following verses here, but we're going to keep moving forward. I want you guys to flip over to the story of another man whose name is Zacchaeus. Maybe you sang a song about him. He was a wee little man, if you guys know that song. Interesting. The man with great possessions here, his nameless Zacchaeus, an outcaster, outsider, has a name. Starting in Luke 19, if you can flip there. Luke 19. 1 through 10. This is Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Zacchaeus, he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus is going and traveling through Jericho, a very wealthy trade city. It was located on a major trade route, and it was also one of the three major cities for collecting taxes. Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He is a chief tax collector. He's the 
Kingpin, the shot caller, he's like the tax head cartel guy. And, and what, what it was is that tax collectors were Jewish people that sold out to the Roman government. And so Jews, it's not that they disliked them, they hated them, they despised them. It would be the same way as if another country took over our country and then they put taxes on us and say they tax us 50%, but then the tax collectors could, could tax us another 20% and they could pocket that 20% themselves, knowing that they would have to give 10% of that to their chief tax collector and the other 10% they could keep. So they were taxing these massive amounts on the Jewish people. They were not liked. They already didn't like the Roman government and that's what they were doing. That's who Zacchaeus is, which means he was rich. He was a wealthy man. What's awesome is men do not run in this culture. That's an undignified thing for men to do. Like in the prodigal son story, when the father runs out to meet him, men would not have done that. It's undignified. It's unheard of. They wouldn't run. They definitely would not climb a tree. I I cannot get the image of what that must have looked like out of my mind. As Jesus walked by and looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down here. Here's a man willing to just risk it all, to get a glimpse of Jesus. Tell me that Christ wasn't pulling on his heart, calling him from eternity past and pulling him toward him. A man that everyone else says, that that guy's a goner. He was literally as good as dead to the Israelites, to the Jewish people. He was as good as dead. And Jesus is like, these are the ones I've come to save. Men like this, man, rabbis would have never done that. They would never eat with the publican. Why? Because they would be implicating themselves in their crimes. That's exactly what Jesus came to do, to implicate himself into our crimes, into our sins, and take those things on. So he was even doing it here. I love the grumbling. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Look at this. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Man, interesting. We have the story of the first guy, very virtuous, yet doesn't, what must I do? What must I do? You get the story of this guy, and his response isn't, what must I do? It's, Lord, behold, this is what I'm going to do. Jesus doesn't say, Zacchaeus, come down from there. After you come down from here, here's what I need you to do. I need you to get your act together. I need you to pay back this. I need you to start giving 10%. I need you to do this. He, he, he takes him as he is. I love what J.C. Ryle says. He says, if Ever there was a soul sought and saved without having done anything to deserve it. That soul was the soul of Zacchaeus. Unasked, our Lord stops and speaks to Zacchaeus. Unasked, he offers himself to be a guest in the house of a sinner. Unasked, he sends into the heart of a publican the renewing grace of the Spirit and puts him that very day among the children of God. That's grace. This man knew that there was nothing that he could bring. There was nothing that he could do that he was going to need the sufficiency of Christ who was there before him. This man this day became saved. How do we know that? He has a profession. Look at his profession here in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, and he calls him Lord. In other words, Master, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone else, I'll restore it fourfold. If your response is, and I'm going to tell you this right now, 10% is an Old Testament tithe. So if your response is, what must I give? Is it 10%? The reason why we throw that number out is because I know very few, very few Americans who can't start there. And so that's why we throw it out. But the reality is, is this, is when Zacchaeus came face to face with grace, with Christ himself, the savior and redeemer that he knew that he needed, he wasn't like, what must I do? What is it, 10%? Just just let me know and I'll check a box. The law required 120%. Zacchaeus said, I'm going to give 400%. That's what he said. I'm going to give 400%. 
wasn't because Jesus said, hey, do this, hey, do this. Sometimes the heart that is so tied to rules and what must I do gets so fixated on that number. But the reality is, is before the cross, we can look and say 10%. When we live as Christians on this side of the cross, the life, the obedience, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, what's called for us in the New Testament is radical generosity. A heart. If we're just focused on this or this, Jesus is going after the heart. This is a heart that says, my goodness, I don't deserve anything. Take this. We see two different responses here, and it's drastic. What's the big difference? What's the big change? Is you can oftentimes tell the person who has been transformed by grace. Why? I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, grace is not against effort. It's against earning. What does he mean by that? We can never earn grace. But one of the ways you can tell that someone understands how massive their sin is, how big their rebellion against God is and the wrath that they deserve is through the life and grace transform the effort. You see, cheap grace, a low view of grace is the kind of grace that says, it doesn't really matter. And to that person, I would say, I don't think you understand how massive the forgiveness is. I don't think, yes, the, the, the grace is free for you, but it cost God his own son being tortured and hung on a cross. My daughter said yesterday when we were doing our family devotion, she said, dad, it doesn't make sense. I don't get it. If Jesus was innocent, why was he on the cross? I was like, exactly, exactly. It is us who should have been there. He was literally on the place that we should have been, taking the punishment that we deserved. God's radical grace and the gospel calls us to generosity. The effort of giving, of sacrifice, of looking at what God has done. As Jesus said, those that are forgiven little, forgive little. Those that are forgiven much, forgive much. A small view of grace leads to a small view of giving grace. A small view of grace leads to small generosity. Look at the way this man responds. Go back. Go back to Matthew 19. Let me make this <clears throat> next challenge. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 Thesis on, on the Wittenberg door, the first one said, all of the Christian life is repentance and faith. All of it. From beginning to end, meaning that we're constantly repenting, turning from our sin, our idolatry, the things we treasure, and turning back to God. He sends his spirit to empower us when we place our faith and trust in Jesus to live that way. That's all of our life is to be lived that way. One of the ways we can tell that someone understands the transforming magnitude of God's grace is a life that is lived in repentance and faith. Here's the interesting thing. So many times people are like, cool, I'll, I'll pray about that. That's not Zacchaeus' response. <laughs> He's like, right now? Lord, this is what I'm going to do. Behold, this is a true profession of faith. Not, and not just that. Jesus tells him something that, that would have, I mean, absolutely just righteously ticked off all the Pharisees. Today, you are numbered amongst the children of Abraham. Only God can do that. Only God can say your sins are forgiven. Only God can number you amongst the Israelites. He's, he's saying, no, 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 you, you're outcasted. No, 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 you're in the family. In fact, you're in the true family of God. God does that. And so Jesus is claiming deity right here, saying your sins are forgiven. You are a true child. You have a name. Where's your name, Zacchaeus? In Exodus, the priests would write down all the names of the Israelites on their breastpiece whenever they went into the tabernacle. What Jesus is essentially here saying is your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And when I write your name in there, there is no eraser. There is no whiteout. It's done. He's written in. 
Jesus did that. And his life was lived out at an understanding of that going, yeah, 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 yeah. All I have is yours. Let's go back to the rich young man. 19. Truly I say to you, 23, Jesus says this. And, his, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich, man, uh, rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's a legend that there was some secret passage that, that was known as like the needle that only you could fit through without a backpack on, everything like that. It, it's a legend. Jesus probably using just hyperbolic language here to say, look, a needle, uh, a camel can't fit through a sewing needle. And man's riches are oftentimes a big hindrance for him to come into the kingdom of God because a rich man can say, look, I got all this. I've done all these good things. Why do I need God? I got a pretty sweet life, right? This was hard for them to understand back then because they oftentimes like today, because the prosperity gospel, understand that riches and wealth must mean that you are doing something great for God. Listen, please hear me. Wealth and riches are not a bad thing. They're not a bad thing. In fact, look at the men of the Bible who are really wealthy. Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Job, David, Solomon. In this case, God didn't call them to give it all up, but he always calls us to be faithful with what he's given us. It's just that some people place their refuge, their safety, their security, and their wealth and their finances. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not it. That's why Psalm 18 says something beautiful, that the Lord is our shield, that he is our refuge. Look at what Jesus says here. Verse 25. When his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, it's a great question. Well, if, if this is it, well, then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. What was he saying? Salvation apart from God is impossible. Man cannot save themselves. You need God. What is salvation? Salvation is this. The most generous thing that Christ could give was his life that he lived here on this earth in complete obedience. A generous life, a life fully devoted to the Father. There's one man who's walked this earth who's, who, can, who can say with full integrity, all of these commands I have kept from my youth. And then he goes to the cross to offer up that life of complete obedience to God. And Christ's declaration is essentially, give them my life of obedience and give me their punishment and their wrath that their sins deserve. And so the great exchange happens. The, the beauty of salvation, though, is not just pardon and forgiveness from sins. It's reconciliation back to God at the costly, costly cost of a son's blood. We're reconciled back to God, all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this Christ compels generosity. Let me say this as we start wrapping up here. That word that Jesus said to him back in 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, teleos, complete, in totality, devotion, finished, we hear Jesus say that same word later in his life. In John chapter 19, when Jesus is on the cross, he says three words. It is teleho. It is teleho. The verb of teleos. Jesus says it is finished. It is complete. In totality, in complete fullness, I have given everything to God. I have given my life in full obedience. I have paid the sacrifice your sins deserve. I have finished everything that needs to be done for you to be seen as holy, blameless, and righteous before God and be reconciled where you are infinitely loved by him. It is finished. Only Christ can say that he's lived a life in complete totality. What we get to do is say, that's my salvation. That's it. And so here's what I would tell you for my last challenge. 
Christ doesn't just want our wealth, family, all those things. We, he, he wants us holistically. He wants our heart. But one of the ways that we can best love and serve others is this. Is each week we talk about serving needs and each week we hear those. One of the ways that we can put to death ourselves and start saying no to ourselves is start saying yes to serving our church family. And so if you are not yet serving, let me as lovingly and as graciously as I know how to exhort and challenge you to please not leave here today without, if you are someone who's placed their trust and faith in Jesus, without signing and committing to saying, I'm going to serve this family because I understand the service and generosity that God has given to me. Know this, when God looks at you through your faith in Christ, he sees a completely generous, faithful, obedient, loving, selfless person who has always treasured him. Why? Because you live that way? No, because Christ made that belong to you. That was his gift to you. And for that, we rejoice. We sing and we celebrate, which is what we're going to do now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories that, that show us what it is to have a heart that's gripped by the magnitude of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.